Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. You're listening to Dr. Vincent Philip Munoz, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Notre Dame, giving a talk entitled, The Founder's Philosophy of Religious Freedom. This talk is part of the Truth, Conscience, and Religious Freedom Conference at Franciscan University of Steubenville. Uh, The subject of my paper is Thomas Jefferson's Philosophical Argument for Religious Freedom. Uh, And I thought before diving into the subject, I would uh, try to take a step back and offer a few thoughts about why we still should be interested or might still be interested in Jefferson today. And I'll uh, I'll speak a little bit about the, um, I'm more interested in Jefferson's philosophy, but I'll speak a little bit about the actual political and historical context of his Virginia statute. Uh, Perhaps the most obvious reason to be concerned with Jefferson today on religious freedom is that our Supreme Court has repeatedly turned to him to guide its First Amendment uh, religious liberty jurisprudence. Uh, in this audience, uh, probably it uh, goes without saying that one can't always trust the Supreme Court uh, to get history correct. Uh, though the court's not a democratic institution or directly accountable to, to the people, justices do offer reasons for their decisions, and those reasons need to be examined, verified, and when needs be challenged. Uh, if the court is going to appeal to Jefferson, we need to see if the court gets Jefferson correct. And we can't know whether the Supreme Court actually does get Jefferson correct unless we have a independent, our own independent study and analysis of Jefferson. So uh, more generally, if our founding fathers are going to gu- guide our political actors, especially our courts, those who study the founding fathers have a responsibility to keep those political actors and, and the people themselves accountable. Uh, right? And if we're gonna use history, let's make sure we get our history correct. A second, uh, reason to study Jefferson is also related to uh, jurisprudence. Uh, The Supreme Court has turned to Jefferson in the guise of the constitutional philosophy of originalism. Uh, Let me uh, me set aside for a moment whether the Supreme Court should turn to Jefferson in its originalist enterprise. Um, So set that aside. The typical argument that one hears in favor of originalism is that it's the only philosophy of constitutional interpretation that is consistent with the rule of law and a written constitution itself. And I think that's correct, but I think that argument is actually insufficient. Uh, Originalism does not ask, and in itself cannot answer the question, is our original constitution good? It may be the case that the role of the judge is simply to interpret the law and apply that law in accordance with the uh, intentions and original meaning of the, the law. That might be what is required for the rule of law, But that does not answer the question, is our law good? It does not explain why the Constitution remains worthy of our respect. The judicial philosophy of originalism can't can't answer these fundamental questions. In fact, it doesn't really even ask them. Uh, Michael Yeoman, a a friend of mine, uh, he's one of my dissertation advisors, and uh, probably a friend of many of those in the audience, I think he, in a way, expressed it best. So let me just uh, put up a quotation from him. He says, At the end of the day, words in a legal text without more cannot carry the philosophical weight that originalists place on them. It's one thing to point out, as originalists do do most effectively, that such and such a phrase had and was meant to have a particularly relatively fixed meaning at the time of the adoption. But ultimately, that argument must rest on the reaffirmation of enduring self-evident truths that must undergrid the case for limited government. That is, on premises that are not explicitly identified in the constitutional text itself. A true originalism, in short, must look beyond the Constitution to justify the grounds of its intellectual authority. And you'll hear echoes of Hadley Arcus's writings in that quotation. And I think that's right, right? 
It's not enough simply to be originalist. I mean, that might be fine for the court. It's not really uh, fine for political philosophy more generally. We have to ask, right, is our constitution good? That means, uh, are our constitutional ideals, or our constitutional philosophy, is that good? This brings me to a third reason to, to study Jefferson. Jefferson thought he understood and uncovered the truth about religious freedom. Uh, I, I'm sure you know Jefferson wanted his authorship of the Virginia Statute for Religious Freedom uh, on his tombstone, one of three things on his tombstone, the other two being uh, the author of the Declaration of Independence and the founder of the University of Virginia. Well, in Jefferson's own mind, authoring the Virginia Statute for Religious Freedom was more important and more impressive and more enduring than being president of the United States. Uh, Jefferson's own estimation of his importance of the statutes actually reflected in the statute itself, right? At the end, he says that uh, the acts that, let me just read it, we are free to declare and do declare that the rights here asserted are of the natural rights of mankind, that if any act shall be hereafter passed to repeal the present or to narrow its operation, such act will be an infringement of natural right. So the Virginia, in, in the Virginia statute itself, Jefferson invokes for its authority the unchanging principles of natural right and natural rights, invocations that invite us today to focus on, on its philosophical teaching. Right? So as we struggle to understand and defend religious freedom today, it would seem that Jefferson would be a natural place for us to, to turn for guidance. Let me just say one other thing here about the school of uh, philosophy I, I come from. Um, I, my deepest concern is trying to understand what, what does it mean to have a natural right to religious freedom, right? In, in some ways, Ken and Jerry's talks were on the same subject, right? Can, is, is there a philosophically uh, coherent and persuasive argument for the idea of a natural right to religious freedom? Right? And we can turn to many places. We can turn to Dignitas Humanae, as, as Jerry just did in the session before. Well, let's, we're in America. Let's start with uh, our founders and see what their argument can show. And so what I'm gonna to try to do today, what I try to do in the chapter, is take the argument seriously, and let's go through it, and let's, you know, let's look at it on its own terms first. Is it coherent, right? And then, after that's done, we can step back and say, you know, is it persuasive? I'm really probably only gonna to get through the first part today. We can talk maybe more about the second question, you know, is this, is this something we should turn to in our Q&A? Okay, let me say just a little bit about the uh, historical context of the Virginia statute uh, itself. Uh, I, you know, I know most of you probably know this already. Um, the Virginia statute was adopted by Jefferson's home state in Virginia in 1786. Uh, in his autobiography, Jefferson called the battle for, to establish religious freedom in Virginia, uh, I'm quoting here, the severest contest in which I have ever been engaged. And if you know anything about the election of 1800, that's quite a statement coming from Jefferson. Uh, in colonial Virginia, uh, the Anglican church was established. It was the official church of the colony. Uh, I mean, that, that means different things, and uh, better historians than I am would, could say more, but it, at least it meant this. Anglican ministers were paid by the state uh, through direct religious taxes. Uh, ministers were licensed, right? You had to have a license to preach uh, and to conduct marriages. Well, this is, these subjects are going to come back, uh, by the way, right? Uh, the state owned the church and church property, right? Uh, all this was brought into question on account of the Revolutionary War, right? I mean, who's, who's the head of the Church of England, right? But the very king we're uh, revolting against. So after we win the war and things settle down in Virginia, 
there's a real question. Well, what are, what are we, what, are, what is Virginia going to do about the old establishment and funding of ministers, right, now that the, the war has been won? Uh, Patrick Henry, you know, give me liberty or give me death, proposed a bill titled, A Bill Establishing a Provision for the Teachers of Christian Religion. It was basically a property tax in which the taxpayer would pay uh, a tax to support his own minister. Uh, this being Virginia, the tax was to be paid in tobacco. And, you know, so you pay your tax and it goes to support the minister, your, your minister. And the minister can do, uh, the bill says it's for teachers of the Christian religion, but it was, the minister could do whatever he wanted with the money. I mean, it was just to support his livelihood, right? Uh, if you didn't have a minister, you could uh, send your tax to the General Assembly and they would set up what they call seminaries for learning. Okay, so this was a direct tax for the support of religion, uh, specifically. Um, it had support of individuals like George Washington, at least, individual, uh, at least initially. And Washington later said, maybe this is too divisive, but initially he, he was in favor of it. Henry's bill leads James Madison to write his famous memorial and remonstrance, right? And if, uh, if uh, Professor Crayson gave me two sessions, I would turn to the memorial next, right? Well, Madison defeats Henry's bill and in its place, the following year in 1786, introduces Jefferson's statute for religious freedom, right, which is then adopted. And then the, the statute, uh, as you know, is cited by the Supreme Court and ha has this huge authority uh, in American constitutional politics and constitutional jurisprudence. Okay, let me stop there again for, on the, on the uh, background, the historical background, and get to the substance of my paper. So you know, what's Jefferson's argument? Uh, Actually, identifying the argument in uh, the statute is more difficult than it would first appear because Jefferson interweaves epistemological, theological, and prudential arguments uh, in the text. And what I try to do is tease out the philosophical arguments, leaving aside the prudential um, arguments. Uh, the reason we're doing the PowerPoint here is just I wanted to put some of the text in uh, so you could see it as I talk about it. Now, you'll see, uh, hopefully you can see, there's some words that are italicized. Since we're interested in Jefferson's thinking, uh, I wanted to use Jefferson's original draft. The italicized words were removed by the Virginia Assembly. Uh, now, Jefferson didn't like this very much, uh, and when he published the Virginia Statute, you know, he was over in, in Europe, when he published the Virginia Statute, he just published his draft, not the text that was actually adopted. I think, you know, most likely because he thought his text was better. He didn't like the words that were eliminated. So if the words are in italicized, those are words that the Virginia Assembly removed. Okay. Note that Jefferson begins by talking about opinions and beliefs. This is because his argument starts from the assumption that religion is essentially a matter of conscientiously held opinions. Uh, I'm not going to question that assumption for now, but we should keep it in mind and maybe we can talk about that later. From this starting point, from the idea that religion is essentially conscientiously held opinions, Jefferson then focuses on two related aspects of the mind's operation. Jefferson said the mind involuntarily adheres to the evidence it find, finds persuasive and that it cannot be restrained. Professor Bradley actually alluded to the, this phenomenon uh, in his talk. Both these epistemological observations follow the teachings of John Locke, who we know Jefferson carefully studied. Jefferson took all sorts of uh, notes on Locke's letter concerning toleration. In that work, in a letter concerning toleration, Locke claims it is only light and evidence that can work a change in men's opinions. 
which light can in no manner proceed from corporal sufferings or in any other outward penalties. Locke's essentially teach, essential teaching is that force cannot shape belief. Right? The, the, the way the mind operates is the mind follows evidence. It, I mean, so as Professor Bradley said, uh, force can make you profess a belief, but it can't actually make you believe that belief. Accepting Locke's idea that evidence alone can persuade the mind, Jefferson recognizes that the mind cannot be compelled to believe. All attempts to influence the mind by temporal punishments or burdens, by civil incapacitations, tend to only beget habits of hypocrisy and meanness. Coercive force cannot, can lead a man, a man to disingenuously profess a belief or an opinion, but it cannot create inner conviction or authentic belief or sincerity, as Professor Bradley stated. The mind's insusceptibility to restraint and compulsion means it maintains its freedom even under duress. Not only is the mind impervious to force, it cannot reject evidence it finds persuasive. Jefferson says, the opinions and beliefs of men depend not upon their own will, but follow involuntarily from the evidence proposed to their mind. This aspect of the mind's freedom implies that in one sense, the mind is radically determined. Individuals do not willfully choose or select their opinions, but rather opinions are the involuntary outcomes of an individual's perceptions, perceptions of the evidence that comes before it. It is these two epistemological observations that establish the mind's freedom, the insusceptibility to coercion and the involuntary, involuntary, I'm sorry, involuntary subjection to persuasive evidence. These two epistemological observations lie at the heart of Jefferson's philosophical argument for religious freedom. Okay. They also serve as the basis of Jefferson's theological assertion that Almighty God has created the mind free. Right? Lots of people see, or some scholars, I should say, see Jefferson as really a, you know, a theological thinker, and I think that's true. But part of my argument is Jefferson's theology comes from his epistemology. Right? He deduces theological conclusions from philosophical reasonings. Jefferson says, Almighty God hath created the mind free, and all attempts to influence it by temporal punishments or burdens or by civil incapacitations are departure from the plan of the holy author of our religion. Note that Jefferson does not cite the Bible or church authority to support this theology, things he does not tend to do. He says, that is, Jefferson says that God created the mind free because Jefferson sees that it is free. He deduces the plan of our holy author from our holy author of our religion in the same way. An omnipotent God, Jefferson says, could have coerced beliefs by infusing the mind directly with knowledge of divine things, but he didn't do so. He left our minds free. It's from, you know, Jefferson's a real scientist in this sense. He conceives himself a real scientist. From observable facts about the mind's operation, Jefferson lead, those observable facts leads Jefferson to his theological conclusions. Right? This doesn't imply that the almighty God that Jefferson refers to is not the God of the Bible. I, I think that is quite compatible. But Jefferson's argument about the mind's freedom does not depend on or even su suggest uh, a biblical thinking. His theological assertions about the freedom of the mind are not derived from re revelation, to say the same thing differently. Observation and rational reflection about natural phenomenon seem to be Jefferson's tools for theological inquiry. Okay, having asserted the mind's freedom, uh, Jefferson's preamble, the, the first paragraph of the Virginia Statute, moves to a set of arguments against the imposition of religious beliefs and the uh, against the compulsion of financial support of religion. Uh, attempts to influence the mind by temporal punishments, 
as we said before, tend to beget habits of hypocrisy and meanness. This is because a direct implication of the mind's freedom is that attempts to influence it by force necessarily fail. Jefferson does not explicitly draw out the full implication of his argument, which is that lawmakers who attempt to legislate beliefs attempt to do what cannot be done, and thus they act ir irrationally. Right? Persecution of religion uh, is irrational, and that's Jefferson's deepest argument, right? and he, he follows Locke there. Uh, at this point in the argument, it's, if you had the whole text, you'd see, be able to see this more clearly, uh, Jefferson turns to some theological considerations. He says it's, uh, he denounces the impious presumption of rulers who assume dominion over the face of others. The presumption is made by civil and ecclesiastical rulers who are, Jefferson says, themselves but fallible and uninspired men. Jefferson seems to imply that God inspires no men or at least no man that exercises civil or religious authority. Being uninspired, civil and ecclesiastical rulers, and notice in this context Jefferson does not distinguish between the two, uh, being uninspired, they lack legitimate authority to establish and impose their own opinions as true and infallible. When they exercise dominion over the faith of others, they do something that God himself refused to, to do, because according to Jefferson, God himself, Almighty God himself influences the mind by reason alone. So civil and ecclesiastical leaders who impose their opinions as true and infallible therefore act impiously. Right? Trying to explain Jefferson's argument here. They act impiously when they, when they fail to recognize the limits of their own knowledge and they fail to follow God's example of persuasion through reason alone. You know, a different, I was thinking when Professor Bradley gave his paper, it would be quite interesting to compare uh, the argument of dignitas humanae with the argument of the Virginia statute. There are some, some overlaps. I think maybe some deep differences ultimately. Maybe we can talk about that more in the Q&A. Okay, not only is the imposition of religious opinions impious, Jefferson declares that compulsory financial support of religion for the propagation of opinions which one disbelieves and abhors is, in Jefferson's words, sinful and tyrannical. It is sinful, presumably, for the same reasons that the imposition of religious beliefs is an impious presumption. Jefferson does not draw out clearly why such action is tyrannical, but it seems, but it is seemingly related to an individual's lack of freedom over his own beliefs and opinions. I, I think the argument is this. Because an individual is not free to reject the opinions he finds persuasive, financial compulsion to support opinions that one disbelieves and abhors forces an individual to sustain beliefs through financial support that he lacks the ability to favor. So just as it is irrational to compel beliefs, Jefferson declares it is tyrannical to force a man to support beliefs about which he has no choice to accept or reject. Having argued that religion should be free from political control, Jefferson then attempts to liberate political rights from religious affiliation. Jefferson's language here becomes less theological and more philosophical, and his arguments reach back to the foundations of liberal political theory. Our civil rights have no dependence on our religious opinions, he declares, any more than our opinions in physics or geometry. Religious tests for political office, accordingly, deprive an individual uh, injuriously of those privileges and advantages to which in common, he has in common with his fellow citizens uh, as a natural right. Here the Virginia statute assumes the social compact philosophy of government articulated in the Declaration of Independence, among other places. And if you know your Locke and your second treaties, this will 
this is all elementary to you. Because government is created by free and equal individuals, it can legitimately exercise on, only those powers granted to it. Jefferson explains in the notes of, of the state of Virginia, his book, that the opinions of man cannot be the object of civil government or under its jurisdiction because, I'm, I'm quoting here from the, Virgin, uh, from the notes on the state of Virginia, our rulers can have only, uh, our rulers can have authority over such natural rights only as we have submitted to them. The rights of conscience we never submitted, nor could we submit. Okay, we need to explain that. Why can't we submit our rights of conscience? The rights of conscience cannot be submitted to government, Jefferson writes in the notes, because we are answerable to them to our God. They also cannot be submitted to return to the philosophy of the Virginia statute, again, because man lacks sovereignty over his own opinions. Men cannot relinquish what they do not possess or control, and because opinions, unlike our acts of the body, are not subject to our will, individuals cannot grant jurisdiction over them to the state. It's our own lack of authority over our own opinions means we can't give authority over them to others. So it's the epistemological fact that limits governmental authority. It's epistemological facts that limit governmental authority over opinions. The epistemological fact that individuals do not govern their own minds in the same way that they govern their own bodies. Since individuals cannot grant the state authority over their opinions, the rightful purposes of civil government are for its officers to interfere when principles break out into overt acts against peace and good order. Let me try to summarize here. The will's lack of sovereignty over beliefs leads Jefferson to draw a categorical distinction between beliefs and opinions on the one hand and actions on the other. Beliefs and opinions lie outside the legitimate jurisdiction of government. Actions can lie within it. This categorical denial of government jurisdiction over the entire realm of opinions is the Virginia statute's boldest claim, and this is its fundamental philosophical teaching. Okay, let me turn now to what the Virginia statute actually legislated. I'm sorry, this is a bit heavy for a Saturday morning. Hope you can stay with me here. Uh, in, so what I've just uh, gone through, I've tried to explain the philosophical argument of the opening paragraph, and that's, that's the heavy philosophy. Uh, in the second paragraph, Jeff, you get the actual legislation. Uh, I, I broke the legislation down into five rights. I mean, Jefferson himself doesn't do this. It's much more articulate. You know, this is me translating Jefferson to the PowerPoint age. Right? But it's a way to, to see what he actually legislates. Right? So there are five legal maxims, I call them. And they're somewhat overlapping. Now, what I want to try to do here, what I try to do in the paper, I'm going to go do this a little bit quickly. It's interesting to think about, okay, do these maxims follow from the philosophy? Right? No one actually ever thinks to do this. Right? Jefferson has a philosophy of religious freedom, and then he says, these are the legal maxims. Well, can you derive the legal maxims from the philosophy? And everyone just sort of assumes Jefferson's argument is airtight. And so basically the point of my paper is to see, well, is it coherent? Does his, does his natural right legal philosophy or legal rules follow from his natural rights philosophy? And what I'm going to try to show is uh, sort of, but not really, not, not all of it. Okay? Despite the preamble's sweeping philosophical defense of complete freedom of opinions, the second paragraph, the legal part, surprisingly does not strictly follow the opinion-action dichotomy. You'll notice that three of the five rights listed pertain specifically to actions. 
right? The right not to frequent any religious worship, the right not to support financially any worship, and the right to profess and by argument maintain one's religious opinions. Uh, in the paper, I try to uh, set forth, uh, somewhat painstakingly, to what extent the bill's legal maxims actually can be derived from the, from the philosophical argument. The conclusion, just to, to save you some pain, the conclusion is that only two provisions can actually be said to follow completely, uh, number three and number five, uh, that an individual should not be punished on account of or have his civil capacities affected on account of his religious opinions does seem to directly follow from the argument that the opinions of men are not uh, the subject of civil government or under his jurisdiction. But because the mind does, nece because the mind does necessarily follows the evidence it finds persuasive, individuals do not determine their own opinions, and therefore they cannot or should not uh, grant authority over those opinions to the state. Lacking such jurisdiction, the state in turn cannot legitimately punish individuals for their opinions or affect their civil capacity on account of their opinions. That all seems to make sense. Uh, also, the idea that individuals should be free to profess and by argument maintain their religious opinions would seem to follow, right? Number four follows from three and five. Though you'd have to recognize, I think, you could have non -con what we call non-content-based restrictions, such restrictions on the time, place, and manner of speech, right, would be consistent with Jefferson's philosophy. Now, why is this? Well, because you might not be able to control what you believe, but you control what, when you speak. And therefore, government could reasonably say, look, you cannot uh, have a revival meeting in the middle of the night, right? Not because we're li limiting your opi opinions, we're actually just eliminating your ability to project your opinions, right, loudly in the middle of the night, and you can control that, okay? It's relatively easy to follow. Okay, well, what about the first two maxims? That individuals should not be compelled to frequent or support any religious worship, or place or worship, um, and especially, I mean, this gets into taxpayer funding of religion, right? And this is one of the big questions of before the Supreme Court. Uh, do these prohibitions follow from Jefferson's philosophy of religious freedom? As a matter of philosophical reasoning, from Jefferson's own philosophical premises, I, I think the answer is actually no. You cannot deduce a prohibition against compelled worship or funding of worship from Jefferson's freedom of the human mind alone. This is not to say that these prohibitions are incompatible with Jefferson's philosophy. I don't think they're incompatible. They just are not supported by it. Jefferson's philosophical premises and his philosophical reasoning alone do not lead to all of his legal conclusions. And let me try to illustrate this by focusing on compelled financial support of religion. Being forced to support one's own religion does not force an individual to act contrary to his professed beliefs. Right? And then in, in no way would it seem to to violate the freedom of the human mind. In fact, it might encourage one to li live authentically. Right? Take the even, even seemingly more difficult case of compelled support for a religion that is not one's own. Jefferson states that to, be that to be compelled to financially support a religion that one disbelieves is sinful and tyrannical. Leave aside for a moment, I know you don't usually do this here, but leave aside for a moment whether it's sinful. And just focus on whether it's tyrannical. Right, we have to think, why would this be tyrannical? Jefferson's argument rests on the premise that it is tyrannical to force an individual to support financially any belief that he does not hold and that he is not free to accept or reject. Jefferson writes that all opinions follow from the evidence the mind finds persuasive, which means that an individual is not free to accept or reject any opinion or belief. If, 
If it is tyrannical for the state to compel an individual to support financial opinions which he disagrees, that means that government funding of any opinion that lacks unanimous consent of the governed would be tyrannical to some. Pushed to its logical conclusion, this legal maxim would make non-tyrannical government action impossible in practice. It would forbid the state to use a taxpayer's dollar to fund any opinion with which a taxpayer disagreed. Right? Only a radically libertarian state, completely unconcerned with the cultivation of any opinions, could attempt to meet such a criteria. Now, it's true that the Virginia statute leans towards such libertarianism when it says the rightful purpose of civil government is limited to restraining individuals when their principles break out into overt acts, right? I mean, Jefferson writes as if the only thing government does is prevent harmful actions. It's completely disconnected from any formation of opinions. And formation of opinions, of course, is education, right? So under the philosophy of the Virginia statute, no government involvement in education well, we know that Jefferson did not actually hold this position, right? One of his greatest accomplishments in his own mind was the founding of the University of Virginia, an institution he founded to educate Americans' opinions. And what is the Declaration of Independence itself, his other great accomplishment on his tombstone, but an attempt to influence the opinions of the world, right, and act politically on those opinions? Jefferson was one of the fathers of public education in America, and his educational philosophy admits the legitimacy of government jurisdiction over and funding of particular opinions. All governments in some way must fund opinions, right? And if it funds any opinions, it's going to fund opinions that some of the governed find objectionable. Let me try to summarize here. In the final analysis, Jefferson's argument leaves us in the position of accepting the impossible position that government can fund no opinions that offend some citizen, or alternatively, we have to recognize that Jefferson's argument employs an unsatisfactory and problematical definition of tyranny. The latter, it seems to me, is correct. It reflects the truth of the matter. In and of itself, it is not tyrannical on Jefferson's own grounds for government to promote through tax expenditures opinions that some citizens do not share. There might be good reasons not to fund these opinions, uh, especially not to fund religious opinions through taxpayer funds, but Jefferson's philosophy of religious freedom is insufficient to, to reach this conclusion. Okay, so, I mean, who, who cares <laughs> to ask sort of the obvious question? Um, if, if my analysis of the Virginia statute's philosophy is correct, we can conclude that it fails to demonstrate that the prohibition against compulsory religious worship and, compuls and more importantly, compulsory, compulsory financial support of religion uh, are natural rights. Right. At least if those natural rights are to be derived from the freedom of the human mind alone. These shortcomings result from the fact that the enacting paragraph, the enacting paragraph's legal maxim protects actions in addition to opinions whereas the preamble philosophically defends the freedom of opinion only. Okay, what to make of this? Um, look, I, I, what I'm trying to do is to take the argument of the Virginia statute seriously, to take its philosophical argument seriously. And we do this in part because Jefferson's one of our founding fathers, right? Uh, you know, we, we live in a good and just regime, you know, for the most part, uh, and that's in part because of the wisdom of our founders, and we should take that wisdom seriously. 
without questioning Jefferson's premises, right? I, I didn't question whether the mind is free the way he says it is. Without questioning those premises, I've attempted to show that only some of the statute's conclusions follow from his epistemological premises. That means only some of the natural rights he articulated can actually be defended as natural rights using his philosophy. This has a number of implica implications, uh, particularly when it comes to our jurisprudence. In Everson versus Board of Education, the Supreme Court turned to Jefferson because it contended that the provisions of the First Amendment, I'm quoting the court here, had the same objective and were intended to provide the same protection against governmental intrusion on religious liberty as Jefferson's Virginia statute. Right? That's why the Supreme Court adopted the Jeffersonian metaphor of a wall of separation. Following that wall of separation, the Supreme Court said, again, I'm quoting, right, government cannot aid one religion, aid all religions, or prefer one religion over others. The Supreme Court said government could not levy taxes in any amount to support any religious activity or institution, whatever they may be called, or whatever form they may adopt to teach or practice religion. In subsequent Establishment Clause cases, I mean, you know this already, the court found aid to religious public schools, public religious displays, other forms of governmental endorsement, especially if connected to taxpayer money, found all this unconstitutional. All this is based on Jefferson, and ultimately is based on Jefferson's philosophical reasoning, at least allegedly. Okay, this is the type of argument that would only persuade, you know, like six people who actually, who actually work in, in jurisprudence. I mean, it's gonna be, it's naive to think that the United States Supreme Court is gonna reverse three generations of precedents based on uh, philosophical reasoning alone, right? That's just not how uh, the world of jurisprudence works. But ideas have consequences, and bad ideas tend to have bad consequences. One of the tasks of scholars, you know, who are given so much freedom uh, to read and think and write, one of our tasks is try to, to try to explain the intellectual roots of bad judgments. One hopes that we might prepare the grounds for better ideas, which in turn might lead to better judgments with better consequences if we can see the errors uh, earlier generations might have made. In exposing some of the shortcomings of Jefferson's Virginia statute, the philosophical shortcomings, it's my hope that uh, we can contribute, or at least I can contribute in a small way, to uncovering a better constitutional jurisprudence of religious freedom, uh, something we badly need today. Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.